Do a lot of companies have them? A lot of companies, it's not even written catered towards them. It's a copied and pasted from some website that they found. And if you actually delve into it and audit it, it's, it doesn't apply to them. And then on top of that, no one verifies it. You know, you have it written, you have written what you do, but who's verifying it? How are you verifying it? Right. You know, how are you showing that what you're doing is actually working? All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode five of Overtime with Nav. As always, I'm your host, Nav Rahimian, CPA, here to deliver value and have some fun with you during this overtime period. Uh, it's been a great week. I have a lot of updates to share with you. And uh, of course, I have my um, weekly guest and I'm super, super excited to introduce someone uh, very near and dear to me, a, another good friend of mine, Mr. Asaf Beiser. Asaf, welcome to the show. Thank you for having it. We're super, super excited to chat today. Thanks for coming. We're making a trek all the way here. I know it's not easy in the middle of the day. Um, maybe I can make it a little bit easier for you. Um, it is overtime, so we're going to have a little sip of something, if that's cool. Let's do it. Cheers. Welcome. Okay, Awesome. Um, you know, I, I wanted to do a little brief intro, but as always, Asaf, I'd like to, I'd like you to also, um, introduce yourself a little bit too in a minute here, but I brought Asaf on the show because, uh, really, I think he could provide tremendous value in, um, to entrepreneurs looking to enter into the food space, whether it's manufacturing, distribution, um, you know, retail, anything he's, he's seen it all. He's helped with it all. Uh, he currently serves as a VP and co-owner of Jackie's Best, a uh, food manufacturing company uh, that specializes in certain types of unbaked goods that I'll let you deep, take a deeper dive on. Uh, he's also, uh, you know, does some consulting in the space too and has helped a tremendous amount of entrepreneurs um, through various assets and so I you know at some point maybe I, we can talk a little bit about you can provide any services as well um, but overall super excited to have you Asaf and thanks again for joining maybe you could uh, take a little deeper dive what's Jackie's best about when was it founded uh, a little bit about what space and what niche you guys are in and then we can take it from there great so yeah, uh, Jackie's best was founded in uh, late 80s early 90s it was founded by my father Jackie um, it is a, uh, we're a food manufacturing facility that manufactures, uh, pastries, croissants, Danish, um, everything's frozen, ready to bake. So we sell everything frozen. Uh, we sell it through distributors and directly to restaurants, grocery stores. Um, and the customer, uh, needs to bake the product before, uh, consuming it. Um, we do, uh, co-packing for, uh, individuals that have their own recipes that want to start their own uh products as well as we have our own branded products as well okay so let me get straight into it i mean if i'm if i'm a listener here maybe looking to enter into the space directly into manufacturing how feasible feasible do you think that is and what does that look like if it is feasible at all so you know it's funny because my dad started the business like i said in the 80s 90s and at the time you know he started with a rolling pin by himself rating uh breads and pastry doughs at like three o'clock in the morning and at his home at his it was a it was a standalone store okay. you can be there at three o'clock in the morning 
and opened doors at 7 a.m., baked goods ready to go, and it was a standalone bakery. And uh, he sold it uh, later in the in the nineties and found a jet his best. Um, and it's uh, you know going from that to that that process was a very long transition. It didn't really happen overnight. Um, but in the beginning, uh, you know, again, it was just him on a rolling pin. Eventually, he added one employee, got to another employee, and it was a slow process to get him to grow to where he was today. So it wasn't a proper manufacturing organization. It was more of a retail bakery, correct? Yeah. Direct to consumer? Correct. And then he sold that. And then um, Jackie's Best was more, he found a, uh, a niche in the business, or uh, meat. And he saw that the business needed uh, people to make the dough for them, the puff pastry dough, the croissant dough, because it was a lot easier for the bakers to get the dough, bake it in the oven, have it ready to go in the morning, than to have to get up at three in the morning, have employees working till seven, and uh, you know doors open at seven, and whatever you made that day is baked. And by the end of the day, you're throwing away a bunch of stuff because if you didn't have a good day, you're not serving that the next day. Wow. That's interesting. I didn't think about that too much. How how often do you think generally, you know, bakeries there's there's waste and 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 is that really a material? I think look, I think some bakeries are better at it, and I'm sure uh, some bakeries have it down and I have it have it pat down. But I think it's a big problem for a lot of bakeries, and I think between um, the cost of labor that it is today versus um, uh, you know a food manufacturing making a, a product your costs are gonna be a lot different, you know? Um, you're making croissants by yourself at the bakery. How many pieces are you gonna make in an hour? 100 pieces maybe, 150 pieces? I have machines that, you know, spit it out. Is that mainly because of, you know, what, what is it? Is it kind of like the business environment is different? Why is that? I think a big part of it is a business environment that's a little different. I think the biggest part though, I think between what labor's at today and the machinery, the technology that we have today, um, it, it's it's just not feasible to have an employee making a, a product at fifteen twenty dollars an hour, depending on where you're where you reside, um, versus a machine that can do it just as good, just as fast, and you're not going to tell the difference. It's the same, right? When and when you say it t- tell the difference, it's between handmade versus machinery, and you know, and I'll you know challenge you for a second where I where I say that you know a lot of our consumers especially in this new day the airlines of the world and like the right. whole concept of like everyone wanting handmade and uh, you know this kind of thing is that you know really you know truly a a big difference that we see in this space and in, in terms of the quality or do you think hey maybe a lot of it is just Candidly, the the technologies at this point outweighs it, and you probably don't notice it. Or what is your perspective there? So my perspective is this: I think there is a, there's always going to be a demand for an artisan type product, but nobody said that that artisan type product has to be made in uh, in a bakery. That artisan product can still be made in uh, in a manufacturing plant. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe this machine won't work for this artisan product, so it might be a little slower to make, but you can still do it on a mass level and have it uh, be more cost-effective for the businesses. Um, but yeah, there is definitely a demand for artisan products, and I don't see that demand going away, but I do see it shrinking, especially in today's economy. The reason why I say that is, I mean, you have 
croissants, money's hard to come by right now. You know, prices are going up. Everyone's trying to buy cheaper versions of whatever it is that they like. Sure. Um, if you have a, you go to an artisan bakery and you get a six dollar croissant versus going to like a, a grocery store and you can get a pack of four for I don't know what they sell for today maybe three ninety nine two ninety nine right all that stuff it's still very good ingredients you know it's artisan quality but it's made by machine very very interesting and so and so maybe we could take a little deeper dive into kind of relationships that you've maybe uh, helped with as it relates to the entrepreneur that maybe is not ready to own a full-fledged multi-million dollar manufacturing facility, but someone who's trying to get into the space and maybe looking to be cost-effective, but at the same time maintain the quality that they're looking to bring out as a product. How have you been able to help and what can you do for that person? So um, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm a co-packer, right? So I, I would, if you gave me, a, if you had a product that you wanted to manufacturing as an artisan product i would get i would have you sign or i would sign an nda for your recipe and so i can use the recipe and manufacture it without you know being able to sell it anywhere else that's the point of the nda sure um i would use that recipe and i would see how it would work in our manufacturing process you would be there during the entire process to make sure that it is uh it's going the process is correct and the final product is to your standards right um and throughout that process you kind of come up you find out what it would cost and uh you go from that um generally speaking um you have to be at a certain level of sales in order to get co-packer like me uh we most co-packers have very large minimums um so uh a person that just starts a food product you know fly by day and is very small is probably not going to need a pill co-packer just yet. I see. And so can we offer some potential benefits of uh, the NAV, the overtime with NAV environment and maybe lower your lower your required sales? Sorry, I'm putting on the spot here, but I, you know, I want value for my guests. And- no, of course. I mean, look, uh, at the end of the day, I have other partners that I have to work with. Sure. And it, it really depends on the product, right? I'm a food manufacturer when it comes to puff pastry, danish, and croissant dough. Okay. If you're making pasta, I can't help you. Sure. You know? I can help you in other ways in terms of consulting. I could give you direction. I, I don't manufacture consulting at my plant. Right. You know? um, or I don't manufacture uh, pasta at my plant. Right. No. What do you, can you elaborate? What exactly is it that you guys focus on? So we focus on frozen uh, pastries, okay, Danish dough, and croissant dough, and okay. and that is whether it's unfilled or filled products, okay. Um, and uh, and yeah, I, I've done cookies as well before. I, I do anything in the bake good space, but I generally don't bake. Uh, I sell the products frozen for the consumer to bake. Got it. Got it. Got it. So if I have a product that can come readily frozen that you'd manufacture and I take it I take it from there I could come to you you know with the right deal we can work out a co-packing deal and you'll get that ready and you know I'll do what I need to do to bake it and then sell it to the consumer correct I mean like if you had a if you had a cookie dough that you wanted to sell for example uh-huh. uh, you would come to me I'd co-pack your cookie dough or your pastry or whatever your product is and you can focus on your side of the business, which is sales and growing your business. You know, right. um, I don't think the average uh, person in food, um, at least in you know a retail grocery store type food, not necessarily a restaurant, 
I don't think the average person should be uh, focusing on making their food. As soon as you get up to the point where you can get a co-packer, go get the co-packer. Focus on growing your business. When you're at the point where you have millions of millions of dollars of sales and you can open up your own plant and the, your own plant just is, it's fully in use just for you, then maybe it makes sense to get a plant. But, at, you know, the average business person, they don't have that. The average business person, they're manufacturing, I don't know, 100,000 units, you know, if that. And that's a lot, you know, and they don't, they don't need that. They don't need that extra headache. Focus on growing that. Right. But let's assume you do get to the point because, you know, I've, I've been successful in helping organizations make certain decisions to be able to really best benefit on potentially acquiring an asset, whether it's the actual industrial property required for the manufacturing facility or it's a, or they have something at least in place and they're able to purchase a particular asset um, that helps them create that and so that kind of you know maybe maybe the journey starts with hey let me let me engage in a relationship with a co-packer right and then next you know i could think about bringing my own foot in my own machinery i don't know if co-packers offer that or hey i'm gonna buy my own facility and put it in there if that is generally is probably not something usually generally no but you know you have uh there's the bigger co-packers that will basically kind of just be like this is what we have take it or leave it and there's other co-packers that may be a little bit more flexible you know and that's i, I would advise anybody looking for a co-packer don't just talk to one you have to talk to multiple you go talk to four or five different co-packers in your space and get the best deal possible go visit their plant make sure they're manufacturing food in a safe way I mean, you go to some of these co-packing plants and they're filthy. They were filthy. You don't want your food product being made in a filthy environment. No, of course not. And we could talk about that and what kind of standard operating procedures yeah. we can get into, um, you know, that would need to be put in place to even be able to have a compliant facility. But um, beyond that, where I was getting at, so let's assume we're at a stage where an organization is at that level where it can make a decision of, hey, do I purchase an asset? to be able to, you know, own some of the manufacturing aspect of it. Um, uh, what are the benefits there? And, you know, because I've, I've, I've helped with this a little bit and it, it all comes down to, okay, well, what are the potential profits that the business is projecting in the year? And there's always, we're in the United States, especially in California, we're taxed freaking heavily and it's always important to think of that because that often becomes at least half of your overhead which is taxes right and so can i do certain things to mitigate my taxes pay a little bit less in tax but, and instead invest in my business and i think this is a classic example where there's a piece of machine machinery that could help you take your business to the next level you can purchase that asset with the profits that you're making and instead of paying that tax you can benefit off some depreciation on that asset, depending on what type of asset it is, and ultimately arrive at even little to no tax Correct. benefit and, so, and tax liability. And so those kind of decisions made at the right time, and I'm sure your father and you guys, you know, were able to make certain decisions like that, that kind of was a no brainer in, in terms of, um, you know, business growth. And you know that's what we all we focus on on our end is really finding those opportunities in business to to be able to continue to grow. My thing is I 
my firm works best with organizations that are always looking to grow and reinvest in themselves, meaning their businesses. And so to the extent you have that mindset, when it comes to taxes, you should always feel comfortable that I'm paying the least taxes when you're with an organization like ours, being able to really focus on that and making those decisions at the right time. You know, something that to, to note on what, a point that you hit was uh, at the end of the year, you know, when I have a good year, I, I'm buying machinery to help to help production be more efficient, you know, to to expand production. Absolutely. So that that is a very important. It's it's an analysis that needs to be done, and if it's not done uh, monthly, if not quarterly, you're if you are already behind as a business owner, you're not making the right decisions. And candidly, I don't think, uh, especially in the environment and the competitive space we're in today, where people are going to survive. Um, so very good point, kind of outlining, I think it helps outlining that journey is, hey, focus on your business. We talk about it a little bit and I know we talk about it all the time. It's it's really all about what your competitive advantage is as a person and as a business owner and what you can hone into and master and being able to bring that team that could help you with that, whether it's separate advisors that are helping you with hey, what are my best finance, tax, and accounting decisions that I need to make? Whether it's having the right consultants in place to help you with certain standard operating procedure decisions, or whether it's a partner that has a skill set that you may not have as much of that you rely on, or an employee for the same reason, and being able to really focus and maximize what you're good at so that that competitive advantage in this day and age continues to sustain itself. So super cool stuff. Um, I know we talked a little bit and brought up SOPs and uh, maybe we could take a step back for for the audience that doesn't know what, what SOPs are um, because I know in the manufacturing world, it is absolutely imperative. Uh, I, I continue to believe in every business, it's imperative that we have them. But maybe Asaf, I know that you do this a lot, and this is one of your main focuses as 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 a co-owner and VP of Jackie's Best. Tell me what, tell us what it is to the novice audience, and help us understand what it is and why it's so important. And um, we could take it from there. Great. So yeah, Asaf uh, is a standard operating procedure, um, and basically it's it's a guideline of you're going to have multiple procedures, but it's a guideline of everything that you have to do in the business, right? And this applies, like you said, to every business. In the food business, it might apply a little differently than it would in other businesses, but I think it's imperative for everyone. Sure. And uh, let's get into like a food business SOP would be like washing your hands. How do you properly wash your hands? At what temperature? How long? Do you scrub your hands? Do you sanitize after? And how do you do it? And it, 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 it could be from wiping down a stainless steel table uh, that would be called a sanitation standard operating procedure or ssfp um like how do you clean a table what sanitizer do you use what soap do you use what uh how, what's your method and i think it's important not only to make sure that you're doing the proper procedures um and when you create a, a sop and you start and you sit down the first thing you look at is okay what is the requirements what is the is there government regulations around this procedure because that's the starting point. And then it's, okay, what do I do? What do I actually do in my facility? How can I go a step further if I want to go a step further than what the government regulations are? Um, and it's building each of those procedures. And I think it's important even from the, the person that's starting their home, the a food business from their home, you know, 
um, having some sort of procedures in place so you know what you're doing. And when you hire a new employee, it training becomes so much easier when you can just hand over a procedure to somebody and have them read it and understand it. And then you kind of quiz them on it, you know? And I think a, a big thing that I've noticed with uh, SOPs and uh, SSOPs is a lot of companies have them. A lot of companies, it's not even written catered towards them. It's a copied and pasted from some website that they found. And if you actually dwell into it and audit it, it's it doesn't apply to them. And then on top of that, no one verifies it. You know, you have it written, you have written what you do, but who's verifying it? How are you verifying it? Right. You know, how are you showing that what you're doing is actually working? Right. And I think that's a big, uh, important aspect to all of this. Sure. So you mentioned regulators. Um, you know, maybe we could focus on your industry as you know it best. What are some of your regulators? I'm sure there's a ton in the food space. I know FDA, maybe we could start from Yes. So there's the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, that oversees uh, all the food in the United States. Uh, usually when you start a food business, you're going to have to register with them to start. Um, the FDA does require or does um, allow some home food businesses if you wanted to start a food business from your home. However, there are uh, health departments that may not allow you to do that. So um, if you did want to start your own food business, I would really advise you to go look at your local health department, your state uh, guidelines and state health department, and uh, as well as FDA guidelines, just to make sure that you got all your I's dotted and T's crossed. Um, specifically in Los Angeles, they, we do, and in California, we do have a, something called the California Cottage Food Walk. Okay. Which allows you to um, basically manufacture or make foods from your home, uh, low-risk foods, um, such as uh, baked goods, uh, nuts, uh, popcorn. Um, these would be examples of things that you could uh, make. But again, you do still have to uh, register. Um, there is still some guidelines you have to follow. But it is something that they allow. I don't know how it is in San Francisco. I don't know about it in Modesto or you know, other states. Um, so definitely if this is something you're going to go down, look and do your research and see what's allowed. Sure. Or just at this point in time, ask chat GBT and let him do everything. Yeah. And that, had, that could work too. <laughs> Semi kidding because like, like you said, and this is what I could envision, uh, chat GBT giving a result on is, you know, a lot of these are super templatized and not even relevant to the specific right. operation. And so it's very critical for you. Uh, to be able to one know what regulatory body is overseeing you, so I mean it's pretty easy if you're in the United States, you got the FDA, and I think there's another regulatory. Yeah, body. There, there's also the USDA. So if you deal with okay. like meats or dairy products, um, I believe shellfish and a few others, uh, you do have to deal with the USDA. So there's the USDA, and then the corresponding state regulatory bodies, and then there's the local jurisdiction where you got to go through. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of different regulatory regulatory bodies, especially if you add in like a kosher certification or a vegan certification or a halal. Um, those would also have another body that you regulatory body. That Interesting. In your in your mind, is there a really the most annoying regulatory body in this space? <laughs> What's the most annoying? Um, there were, the kosher regulatories can be a little bit uh, annoying, but it's good that they're there, you know, that they uh, they do their job and it's important that we have them. Right. And, and you know, the health department's there pretty often. You know, I, I don't see the FDA very often, but they do come, you know, and when they come, they, they check everything they need to check. And 
look, 20 years ago, if you would have asked me at the state of our regulatory bodies, it, it's a lot different than it is today. Today, it's a lot more, there's a lot more people checking than there used to be. How often are you getting audited? So we uh, audited, uh, we do a third party audit and it's a, it's a voluntary third party audit. And uh, every uh, annually, um, I'll have a third party company come and it'll be usually a day or two day audit. And they'll review everything from all our SOPs, all our SSOPs. They'll review our food safety plan. They'll review our HACCP program. And the food safety plan and HACCP program, all that is, is um, it's a program that was created to make sure that you keep your food safe. And it, it within the HACCP program and all that, uh, the SOPs come into play. That's where it all comes into play. But uh, the whole point of the food safety plan is to analyze any hazards you have, and has plan is to analyze any hazards you have in your facility and um, make sure that you're stopping those hazards before an event happens to where you would need a recall. Yeah. How often are you updating SOPs? Like, let's say once you have it in place, how often are you reviewing and updating them? So, um, well, you guys have been around for years. Right. So, part of the reason why we do these third party annual audits, by the way, is because, um, in order to do business with some of these bigger grocery stores or even some of the smaller grocery stores, you know, Ralph's, Whole Foods, or even like your local grocery market, um, they're going to require you to have these uh, plans in place and to be annually audited. They want to make sure that the food they're selling is safe, uh-huh. right? Um, so it's going to be very difficult for a uh, standalone buy guy that has a, that's doing something from their house to be able to sell the Ralph's. Sure. You know, you're not going to be able to have your audit annually, et cetera. Um, but for the person that does, uh, we get audited annually in order to make sure that we can still continue to sell to, to your, con- to your cons- customer. Right. Here it is. Generally larger grocery bakery. Correct. Okay. Got. It. And then through those audits, you're going through and consistently updating yes. the ops insurance. So yeah. So it, it's, it's a never ending process, right? Uh, I, when I, I think I first, first created our program about maybe 12 years ago, 12, 13 years ago. And it has been a nonstop process in updating it. Every year, I review every SOP. I make sure that it's still current. And there's always changes happening, right? I mean, you have employees. Everyone everyone who has a business has employees, and there's always going to be different type of employees, different strengths, different weaknesses. And you're going to need to tailor your shops towards the mistakes that come up and the mistakes that arise, you know? Absolutely. Um, it, it, to the point where, um, you know, uh, if you need to add um, a, a new SOP to make sure that hair doesn't get into your facility, you have to now have a procedure on that and you have to update it annually and make sure that this is working, you know? Right. Right. Very, very interesting. So we dealt, we dealt with a crazy, crazy um, change then I'm curious what type of regulatory updates came out of COVID. So, so what happened there in, in your space? So, yeah, so uh, a lot of the COVID regulations came down from the uh, public health department. Okay. Um, and I think a big majority was, uh, was about keeping the employees safe. Okay. So in terms of keeping the food safe, we already had such good uh, standards in order to keep the food safe that I don't think too much of that changed. Um, but in terms of uh, the employees, uh, we had we had to stagger breaks in order to make sure that our break room wasn't um, too occupied at once, right? We needed to make sure that there's six feet between people, which is sometimes hard in a, in, in a food manufacturing, right? Especially when people are shoulder to shoulder on some machines. Right. 
Um, so you, you had to put up, um, those barriers. We, you know, we, everyone had to wear masks. Uh, we had to, um, we upped our sanitation procedure. I mean, before I think I had two or three sanitation employees, we upped it to like six, seven sanitation employees just to make sure that everyone was wiping down all the knobs and we had a, to everything, you know, and right. you went a step further than you normally would. You know, I, I think I was wiping down doorknobs. Uh, maybe like eight, ten times a day. Pre-COVID, it would be like, okay, let's clean it at the end of the day, and then the next day, right? You know, right? The doorknob, but it, it's it is actually very uh, important if you think about it to certain. So, that that's very interesting to me, because one of the things, as you know, is um, we we really took COVID and strove to provide as much value and and help to our clients to be able to one make sure that they're taking advantage of any government grants credit anything that we can and one of the things that we focused heavily on and continue to do so is the employee retention credit and and some of the things you know you just mentioned to me because I'm doing this analysis every day just like you know, light bulbs, light bulbs, light bulbs all hover in my head. And, you know, maybe I could take a second and help educate our audience who are the audience who is thinking about uh, whether or not they qualify for the employee retention credit. Now, you know, not speaking of Jackie's best specifically, but some of the things you mentioned. So uh, two things. One, there are two qualifications, essentially. There's there's a few, but I like to break it down into two and then it goes into some subsets. But for the purpose of this conversation, there are two. You can qualify for this employee retention credit, which, by the way, can get you up to $26,000 per employee that you have. Uh, and, if, and the qualification metrics are as follows. One, you need to show... Uh, to option one, you need to show a significant decline in your gross receipts. So the gross revenues that you received pre-COVID, which is 2019, against post-COVID 2020 and 2021, uh, or during COVID 2020 and 2021, you need to have a significant decline. What that means is you, t- you do a quarterly analysis, 2020 juxtaposed against 2019, same quarter. In 2020, if you had a 50% decrease in your in your revenue you would qualify for that quarter so you do that quarter to quarter and then you figure out how much what type of credit you could get that's good 2021 they actually lowered the significant decline definition to 20 percent and so basically if you're comparing 2019 to 2021 on a quarterly basis if it's 20 percent lower then you would qualify for that quarter that was option one you know this iteration of the code actually got amended probably 30 times. Um, and one of the things that were, were also brought into the picture was another method. And it's more of a qualitative method. And this is kind of going back full circle into some of the stuff that you, you're talking about. And it's uh, if you were, if you were, and it's again, a quarterly analysis, if you were partially suspended as a result of government authority, um, then you would potentially qualify. In this example, it was the food, the health safety, health department, the health department. Um, if that government body 
had that authority and that had more than a nominal effect on your operation, then that's fine. Now the question becomes, okay, nominal effect. How do I define that? What is a nominal effect? Yeah, what is a nominal effect? Is that quantified? Again, IRS, because businesses are so different, they wanted to stay broad and allow the business owner to make that decision. Now you got to be, you know, at the end of the day, if the IRS wants to audit you and question you, you got to feel comfortable to say, hey, because of XYZ, I had more than a nominal effect. And so in this example, when I see a business having to completely uh, revamp its its workforce to be able to sustain some of the rules, I could imagine there should be some effect. Now, whether it's more than nominal, it's up to the business. Now, does it mean, does it ultimately go down to the sales and what happened with the sales of the business? Absolutely not, because there are so many different aspects that impact sales. This is one piece of the business that was affected, and it's important that you focus on that piece to determine what is that operation and what is that. Let me ask you a question on it. Can you essentially also say that uh, you know because of COVID, I could have grown sales even more? How? Um, and why couldn't you? I'm just giving an example, but yeah. um, let's just say for us, you know, because of all the policies in place and the uncertainty, um, you almost don't want to pick up another big customer and uh, not be able to manufacture it, you know? Um, you, you, you don't want to pick up another customer to be able to, uh, because you don't have the capability to now because you have to stagger your brakes, because you have to do all these things that are put in place, it's almost risky for you to pick up another customer at this point. And look, I'm not talking about a small customer that you can just kind of squeeze in. I'm talking more of the bigger customers that would be a, that would, you know. If the growth limitation that you're speaking of is due to a government authority not allowing it, where otherwise pre-COVID you can, mm -hmm. I think that's a good, it's a good argument. But again, I think when, when, when to assess these as business owners, you need to take a step back and definitely satisfy it can't just be because of a business decision. It has to be a government authority triggering this Trigger. suspension. Got it. Right? A government authority has to say, hey, you cannot have X, Y, Z. And because of it, what happened? Um, so that's one thing. And then two, it's, uh, you know, it has to be some sort of operational disruption. And so if you could point to that, focus on that, and figure out what is and how, and, and, and you know, make an argument that it is more than a nominal effect on your business, I think I think you're on the right track. So, I mean, for moral of the story, make sure here, speaking to the right advisors for the employee retention credit, I love my accountants. I, ha I'm, I'm, I have colleagues and peers uh, that I work with that are CPAs themselves. And I'll tell you, we're super busy. And it is very common for your accountant to not know the intricacies of the employer retention credit. I'll pull it up one day for you guys if you guys want. It's a 200 pager, right? And we've gone through it, we've assessed it, we know it like the back of our hands, and I don't expect every accountant to know that. It's a very complex matter. You know, you have an injury, you don't go you don't go to a lemon law attorney, right? Yeah, the same thing with the FDA guidelines, that book is like this thick, right, nonstop information. That, that's exactly right. So, but I kind of wanted to shift gears a little bit because I know 
behind all the days of the strenuous days of making puff pastry, you, uh, you know, I'm sure you get to find some time for some fun. What do you do for fun? I mean, lately it's been a little bit of poker, you know, yeah. some fantasy football. Uh, fantasy football season about to, football season is about to start, so fantasy football is uh, about to take a good chunk of uh, time there. Like yeah, free time. That's what you do for your free time. To play fantasy football. Fantasy football. Uh, poker's been uh, poker's been on the mind lately. Um, and that's what I really enjoyed the whole environment, the collaborative and you know environment of it, and people really putting their focus on one thing, which is so rare with the advent of all this technology and social media and all the great stuff. So absolutely. I freaking love I freaking love the sport. Poker specifically, you know, there's so much going on at the table at once that um have you ever heard the book um Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell? Yes, of course. So there's something that he speaks about how to like to get proficient at anything you need about ten thousand hours. Yes. Um so Well so in anything you're doing, if you spend the the rule is spend ten thousand dollars and you'll probably be really good at it. 10,000 hours, yeah. 10,000 hours later, okay. If only you could spend $10,000 and be really good at something, that would be pretty good. So did I see that, yeah. <laughs> hours, yeah, 10,000 wouldn't take you that far. I think. <laughs> what we were, he was saying is the less the less you care often, the more you tend to win. And it's a very interesting thought. You know, it's funny because I feel like that applies into a lot of areas of life. Because it's like, really? yeah, because I mean, think about, you know, uh, when you were single, right, and you date, and you're dating, right, you go out. The more you care, it's almost like it doesn't. You don't get the result you want. Whereas, like when you don't really care, it's, you kind of getting results differently. And I think it's the same way in business. The more you kind of like, like, look, I think in business you should always prepare for the worst, right? Right. Um, but like, you don't want to like be so zoned in on the worst. Like, enjoy yourself, enjoy the process, enjoy everything. And the journey, that the journey is awesome, man. And yeah, there's bumps and bruises along the way, but that's kind of where the learning happens. And usually things work out, you know. I love that. No, that's that's super cool. And, you know, kind of going back to you, you made me think of something. I, you know, some of the things that we hear. I remember I was in, I was in my, I think it was my sixth or seventh grade basketball. Uh, and like I was on the basketball team, and. I had this coach. I haven't followed up. I don't even know. If anyone knows, please reach out to me and let me know what's up with the guy. Mr. Shimoyama. He was like actually a really big coach, known coach in like LA school district. Um, and one of the things he would always preach, he was like, we would be in practice and we probably we were all young, not, not knowing like intricacies of the sport. And he would okay guys you know you think you know what you're doing right practice make per- makes perfect right and i remember he called me i was like right now practice makes purpose i'm like yeah practice makes perfect bullshit and he starts getting mad and i and i'll never forget his face it's super cool asian dude uh he starts getting mad at him he's like practice doesn't make perfect that's bullshit and then he's like perfect practice makes perfect and it's always important, you know, to go and going back, whether it's poker, like, are you just, are you really trying to improve your skill set? Whether it's business, are you really, you're going in day to day, are you changing it? Are you getting uncomfortable? Are you, are you focusing on, on that improvement in your sport? Are you trying to work on your offhand? Are you working on certain things or are you just going to do the same thing over and over? You can better. 
Absolutely. I think I think that's a big problem with uh, a lot of people is is you get and even I, I'm guilty of it at times too. Is you get so busy into this task list and things that you have going on, and sometimes you end up doing busy work that's not even uh, beneficial to your goal, right? Yeah. And it's it's almost a, a constant. You have to constantly analyze what you're doing and what what you what your ultimate goal is, right? Because then you can work towards that. Because if not, you just have a blanket task list of a bunch of stuff where, you know, maybe 60, 70% of it you could delegate that you don't need to be worrying about. And you could focus on your business or, or whatever it is that you're working on, whether it's sports or whatever, like you mentioned. Yeah, the opportunity to be able to look at and learn from the best at what they do online it's, it's pretty crazy going on YouTube and see the best person doing this goal is to go watch a master class and see the best person in the world play, play poker. Yeah. That's how Brandon got us last year. <laughs> and, uh, but, but yeah, it's crazy. It's incredible. It's scary. We always talk about it, but it's, you know, once you dive in and accept it and, you know, and maybe, maybe we could end with this is continue to find what you're super good at within your industry and focus on that, hone in on that, become the best at that, and then build around what you, you know, need additional help in, right? Whether it's whether it's an advisor to come in and help with your finances and accounting, whether it's a consultant to come, you know, give you some consulting on your SOPs, whether it's, uh, you know, reaching out or even watching YouTube videos to be able to empower others to be able to do certain things. Think about it, think outside the box, enjoy the journey. And as off, I think we've kind of run out of time. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, of course. went too fast, so hopefully we can do this again soon. Definitely. And uh, I'll see you soon, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah.